You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is going to one day return for his people. One day, King Jesus will split the heavens to take his redeemed home, establishing justice and renewing all things. And in light of this truth, this wonderful truth, God's people are called to strive for holiness. Servants of the heavenly kingdom make themselves ready for the appearance of their king. And this is the main theme in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote this letter to encourage the believers, the church at Thessalonica, in the face of difficulty by reminding them of the glorious truth that Christ will come again. And this reality shows up in every chapter of the book. And my aim in prayer is, as we work through the book together this year, is to help us to reorient our lives around Christ's second coming to place the thought of eternity deeper into our souls and to make it more precious in our hearts. Our fight for holiness is given extra zeal when we gaze on the future that awaits us. And I hope, as as John Piper puts it, to encourage us to live well as sojourners and to die well as saints. So with that in mind, follow, follow along with me as I read our passage today. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 10. I'll be reading from the ESV. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything." For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In our text today, we're going to see three things that describe and characterize God's people. We're going to see that God's people are called to holiness God's people are commissioned for discipleship and God's people are confident in 
Christ. Let's begin with the first part. God's people are called to holiness. We see elements of this even in verse 1. So look with me there. The three founders, Paul, Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy, the three founders of the church remind the readers of their collective identity. They are a church, a, a gathering of people in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One facet of holiness is being set apart, being distinct. And as an entity, what defines them is, is not their common ethnicity or shared interests. The Thessalonian church finds its unique identity in its union with the Father and the Son. And Paul's customary greeting of, of grace and peace points to how this union was brought about. It brings us to the heart of the gospel. The Thessalonian believers were saved by the grace of God. And now they have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God results in peace with God. Now, why would God set his grace upon them? Starting in verse 2, Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians for two reasons. And the second reason answers our question. Look with me at verse 4. Why does God set his grace upon them? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. People loved by the triune God. Now, don't, don't miss the enormity of what is being said here. Specific people are invited into the eternal love of the triune God. Now, we might think of God's love in, in a general sense, in, in a John 3.16 sense, for God so loved the world. And we could think, you know, God loves the world. I am part of the world, so God loves me. And of course, that's, that's true. But our verse here goes far beyond this. The love of God here is a particular, a covenantal love. It is a specific love that expresses itself in election unto salvation and holiness. Look with me at what it says in Romans 1 verse 7. This is Paul's greeting to the church in Rome. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, called to be holy. Not all in Rome are loved by God in the same way. Those loved by God are called to be holy. And it is those loved by God whom God chooses to bestow his electing grace. The singular cause for election is the love of God. Not any positive or, or negative character or achievements of the person. And this is the pattern we see throughout the Bible. In, in Deuteronomy 7, God chooses the nation of Israel to be his treasured possession. But it says that it was not because they were a great people, but it was simply because the Lord loved them. And in Ephesians 1, we see that God chooses a people before the foundation of the world, before they were even born, to be holy and blameless before him in love. 
And how, how do those who are chosen by God respond to the preaching of the gospel, to the message of free grace? Look with me at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. This is how they respond. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The largely Gentile Thessalonian church, loved by God, chosen by God, turned to God. And as a result, they turned from their idols, the the pantheon of false Greek gods. And that's the other facet of holiness. Holiness is not only being set apart, being distinct, but it also speaks of a wholehearted devotion. God is holy because he is in a class by himself. There is none like him. But he is also holy in the sense that he is completely devoted to his own glory. And that is what Paul hears of the Thessalonians. They were devoted to worshiping idols, false gods. But now they turn their devotion to serving, worshiping the one and only true and living God. Worship as a wholehearted, life-consuming response to what God has done in Christ. Those who are called to be holy turn to God. Listen to how David Williams puts it. If we choose to be in Christ, we have been chosen by God. And how was this holiness, this wholehearted devotion to God displayed in the Thessalonians? Look back with me at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they are traveling, and as they travel, they constantly pray for this young church that they have started. And what is it that causes thanksgiving to well up inside them as they remember this church? Verse 3, we give thanks, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Holiness is displayed in faith, love, and hope, the trinity of Christian virtues. Now, few things bring more joy to a pastor than seeing wonderful evidences of grace in his flock. Paul sees the presence of good works motivated by love and faith. Not good works to earn salvation, but as the necessary fruit and confirmation of their salvation and God's election. Their faith is not dead. Their love is not a mere emotion. Instead, these virtues express themselves in sacrificial labor for the benefit of others, exercising hospitality, comforting the suffering, caring for the poor. The striving for holiness is always, always hard work. Paul also sees their steadfastness of hope. But this perseverance doesn't stem from inner resolve or or personal strength. The source of their endurance is their hope in Christ. Hope in his promises. Hope in him coming again. Hope that gives a foundation to persevere in the face of suffering, temptation, 
and persecution. And my beloved church, I see this in you as well. I see and hear of so many works motivated by love and faith. Time spent praying for our church and its people. Connecting with those who are newer or lonely. Being Christ to those who are orphans. Seeking forgiveness and reconciliation with others. Spending time and energy to make and deliver food for young parents. Serving in other practical and often unseen and thankless ways. Giving of your time to counsel and encourage others. Giving of your presence in our tags and other contexts of biblical fellowship. I see and hear of perseverance that stems from hope rooted in Christ. Endurance in the face of suffering and sickness. Patience for prayers yet unanswered and good desires yet to be fulfilled. Constancy in the fight against sin and temptation. You are such an encouraged, encouragement to me in your evidences of holiness. And I thank God for you all. Now, God's people, they're not only called to holiness, but they're also commissioned to discipleship. And that brings us to our second point. We're going to see in our passage three aspects of discipleship here. Look with me at verse 5. Paul here gives further certainty of their election. He says that we know that God has chosen you because your gospel came, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Before Before Jesus ascended, he gave his disciples what is known as the Great Commission, as we find in Matthew 28. Because all authority on heaven has been given to Jesus, therefore the disciples are to go and make disciples of all nations. And how would they do this? By one, baptizing, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And two, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded them. And we see here that Paul was participating in what we'll see is our first aspect of discipleship. He proclaimed the gospel message to those in Thessalonica and he taught them to live under the authority of King Jesus. And we see that his character matched with his message. Look at the end of verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. They were men of integrity. But it was not ultimately him as the messenger who changed hearts. Notice the critical role of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that infuses the preaching of mere men with divine power. It is the Holy Spirit who brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, just as Jesus said he would do. And only the Holy Spirit can regenerate a dead heart to respond to the call of the gospel. Now we see another aspect of discipleship in verse 6. It says, and you became imitators of us 
and of the Lord. Discipleship involves imitation, following Christ and other, world, and other worthy saints. Now, how were they emulating Paul and Christ? We read on in verse 6. You became imitators of us, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It was their experience of suffering that tied the Thessalonians, Paul and Christ, together. In Acts 17, we read about the beginnings of the church in Thessalonica. And immediately after the church was founded, the Jews became jealous of the Christians' influence and they stirred up the city against them. And even in in its infancy, the Thessalonian church, these, these baby Christians experienced persecution for their newfound faith. And they were following Paul's example of suffering. Just a chapter before in Acts 16, he had just been beaten for his role of starting the church in Philippi. And Paul himself was following in the pattern of the suffering savior. All of them faced suffering with joy. Notice again in this verse the vital role of the Holy Spirit in producing joy. This is what Gene Green says about this. What determined these Christians' attitude in their persecution was not their circumstance, but rather their experience of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit joy strengthens young believers in the face of adversity. Paul can rejoice in his sufferings because God's love has been poured into his heart through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Lastly, we see that discipleship involves being an example to others in the faith. Look with me at verse 7. In their imitation, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They were not only an example of how to face suffering, as we saw in verse 6, but we see in verse 8 that they were an evangelistic church. The word that came to them was now sounding out from them. The gospel was proclaimed with power over a large areas, far-reaching. I think of, I think of the, the amber alerts that we all get on our phones when someone is, is, is missing. They were an evangelistic church, but they're also a faith-filled church. Like Paul, their clear gospel message cohered, fit with the integrity of their lives. And as we already saw in verse 9, they were an example of true repentance, turning from idols and turning to God. It is through the proclamation of the gospel, imitating Christ and being an example by the Spirit's power that discipleship happens. As Christians help one another to follow Jesus, the nations come to know the living and true God. Far from being just a group for campus fellowships or or even a program at the local church, discipleship has cosmic significance. Now we might ask, how how are Christians able to do this? How are they able to be holy? How are they able to accomplish the immense task of changing the world through the making of disciples? And this brings us to our 
third and final point. God's people are confident in Christ. Christians can strive for personal holiness. They can engage in world-transforming discipleship because they are confident in Christ. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. We saw that they had turned from idols. They committed to serving the living God. And now in verse 10, they wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This verse is all about Jesus, what he did and what he will do in the future. Paul urges the young Thessalonian church to fix their gaze on Christ. Christians are confident in what Christ has definitively accomplished on the cross. From heaven, he came and dwelt among his sinful people. He lived a perfect, holy life. Jesus, he, he never worshipped at the feet of an idol. He is distinct as the only one who has ever been completely devoted to serving God, his Father. And on the cross, he died in the place of sinners. The Holy One for the unholy, the righteous one for the unrighteous. And our verse tells us that God raised him from the dead. He conquered sin and death and was raised for our justification. Salvation is secured for God's beloved chosen saints. Believers are also confident in God's promises. All the promises of God find their yes, their amen in Christ. What we see is that Jesus will deliver his people from the wrath to come in final judgment. God's holy wrath at judgment will cast sinners, death, and the devil into the lake of fire. But saints will be delivered, rescued from eternal separation from God's good presence. And this is because Christ in his death has already absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of his chosen people. And what else has God promised? What else has Jesus promised? How are Christians able to strive for holiness, to do their part in sanctification? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will bring completion to what he has started. How are Jesus' disciples able to bring the gospel to the nations? How are they able to remain faithful under the threat of persecution and even death? Jesus says, I am with you always. I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's people rest on his unshakable promises. And lastly, God's people are confident in Christ's return. One day, Christ will return for his own. Serving God and waiting are not at odds with each other. They are intimately connected. They are two sides of the same coin that is the Christian life. We see, this, we see this also in Titus 2, verses 11 
to 13. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this grace in verse 12 trains us to say no to sin and yes to holiness. And what is it that motivates this lifelong quest for godliness? Grace trains us for holiness as we eagerly anticipate the appearance of Jesus. This waiting, this anticipating, it isn't passive. It's an active hope. It is eagerly expecting, longing, yearning for our blessed hope, the return of our King. And with him come the elimination of tears, death, and pain, and suffering. The end of our sanctification and our entrance into glory. Our affections perfectly and intensely set on Christ. Eternal joy as we worship in the presence of our holy and triune God. Eschatology, the doctrine of end times, it's not just a topic for debate, but it fundamentally changes the way we live now as God's people. Now, if you're listening, either here or online, and if you're not yet a Christian, how you respond to the truths of this passage will look very different for you. The fact that Jesus is coming again should not be a welcome truth for you. It should be a terrifying one. When he comes, you will not be delivered from the wrath to come. You will be judged by a holy God and found wanting. And you will be cast into hell forever separated from the source of all that is good and lovely. Now you might say, is this, is this really fair? Where's, where's the justice in this? An infinite punishment for a mere 20 years, 60, 70 years of minor wrongdoing. Certainly, I, I don't deserve that. But the thing is, hell is an infinite sentence because it punishes an infinite crime. No wrongdoing is considered small because your sin is not against a small God. Every sin is an infinite crime because it is a rebellion against an infinitely good, holy, and loving God. But the good news of the gospel, what, what Paul preached, what the Thessalonians proclaimed, and what I'm declaring to you today is that you can be delivered from the wrath to come. This is the astounding news of Christianity, the good news of Christianity. Through repentance and trust in Jesus, you can be a recipient of God's favor instead of an object of his wrath. So turn, turn to God. Turn from your sin, your self-reliance and your self-righteousness and turn to Jesus. Trust in what he has accomplished on the cross for sinners like you and experience with us the indestructible and incomparable joy of being beloved by the triune God. And finally, for, for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are loved by God, how do we respond to this passage? Just have one thing. 
resolve, resolve to think often and longingly of heaven. Cultivate a deep yearning and ache for the incomparable joy of being in the presence of our majestic God forever. Our capacity for joy in heaven is shaped by the development of that capacity here on earth. I've yet to see anything in scripture that says we will all just be immediately changed to the same level of appreciation for our eternal experience. It's not like the matrix where all, all of this is just downloaded into our systems all at once. Not everyone will take the command to, to store up treasures in heaven, to set our minds on things above with the same seriousness. And we will enter glory having differing degrees and of appetites and capacity for satisfaction. We will enjoy heaven to the extent that we elevate our desire for it now. What we think about heaven now has eternal weight. So this, it's worth our most concentrated effort as we wait to be brought home to the Lord. Heaven will not be like waiting for a roller coaster or a table at our favorite restaurant. A long wait for momentary enjoyment. And isn't this, isn't this so much of our lives right now? Heaven won't just be like, like fireworks, magnificent but, but fleeting bursts of light and beauty. And then we go home. No, heaven will be a place of ever-increasing joy as we behold the infinite majesty of our God. He will be more glorious, more beautiful, more brilliant than anything we have seen or can imagine. We will never get bored as we gaze at the face of God. We will be captivated again and again. Our hearts will flutter as we come to know more and more about the love of God for us in Christ. Joy and love will be the air we breathe. And it is impossible to exaggerate what awaits us. How we wait for heaven will radically affect the way we serve and worship God now. It will change our perspectives on work, on our choices of entertainment, how we live in our marriages, how we raise our families. It will change our priorities. It will impel us to strive for godliness, to be blameless in holiness when Jesus returns. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we cultivate this longing that equips us for holiness? Meditate and pray on, pray Psalm 27 verse 4 often. One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Talk about heaven with your children. Show them that there is something so much greater than their favorite toy or their favorite TV show. Whenever we encounter brokenness in the world, and there really is so much of it, purpose to turn your thoughts to the renewal of all things. And be praying, as Galen prayed at the, at, uh, to close our time of singing, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
the essence of heaven is the, is the vision of God and our eternal joy and satisfaction. We will see the face of God. So my beloved church, be ready to behold your God. Let's pray. Oh God, how we, how we long to be in your presence. We know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We, we yearn to one day be forever with the Lord. So we pray that you would increase our desire for you. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life, give us abundant life in your ways. Help us to look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, the, the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. And we pray that as we wait, as we wait for you to bring us home, that you would help us by your spirit to, to keep our way pure by guarding it according to your word. Help us to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, we want to be a holy people. Sanctify us with your truth and by your spirit. And Father, we ask that you would cause the gospel to sound forth from us and that you would have grace and mercy to those who hear it and grant them life in Christ. Be pleased to use us even as we anticipate not gathering together soon. Use us for the sake of Christ's glory among the nations. We pray this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.